Good morning, everybody, and a very warm welcome to morning worship here at Hillhead. As we prepare to worship God, we hear some words from the first letter attributed to Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Good morning. Um, just would like to share with you first uh, a small poem inspired by a, a poem written by Kate McLagan. And the title of his poem was uh, Lent is not for the faint-hearted. Lent is not for the faint-hearted. Lent is not tidy. The days grow longer. The ground thaws. There is mud and dirt everywhere. Snow and wind battle in our streets as the daffodils or fragile promises for warmer days. Lent is not for the faint-hearted. Lent is an in-between time, a time to explore what is the nature of the promised kingdom of God on earth that we long for. A time to discern how we are called to work for it. Lent is a journey toward the cross, a journey of enlightenment from wilderness to feast, from desert to oasis, from a wandered world to the reconciliation of all nations worshipping the land. So let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your creation, for the renewal of all as spring comes, and for this sense of wonder and lengthening our days after a long winter. Lord, help us to be renewed, recreated as a nature around us. We pray. We all now say the Lord's prayer in our own tradition and language. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily and forgive us our death as we have for our forgiveness. Do not give us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For you is the kingdom and the power of the glory. Amen. The first reading this morning is from Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, on page 76. The Ten Commandments. Jesus, sorry, God spoke, and these were his words. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt where you were slaves. Worship no God but me. Do not make for yourselves images of anything in heaven or in earth or in the water under the earth. Do not bow down to any idol or worship it because I am the Lord your God and I tolerate no rivals. I bring punishment on those who hate me and on their descendants down to the third and fourth generations. But I show my love to thousands of generations of those who love me and obey my laws. Do not use my name for evil purposes, for I, the Lord your God, will punish anyone who misuses my name. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. You have six days in which to do your work, but the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to me. On that day, no one is to work, neither you, your children, your slaves, your animals, nor the foreigners who live in your country. In six days, I am the Lord, made the earth, the sky, the sea, and everything in them. But in the seventh day, I rested. That is why I, the Lord, blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Respect your father and your mother so that you may live a long time in the land that I am giving you. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not accuse anyone falsely. Do not desire another man's house. Do not desire his wife, his slaves, his cattle, his donkeys, or anything else that he owns. Here endeth the lesson. And the second reading uh, is from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 28 to 34. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that. He is one, and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all will burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he, asked, that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question.
Today we continue our Lenten journey through the first part of the Hebrew Scriptures. And today the character we meet, at least by implication, is Moses, the revered leader of the Hebrew people who led them from a life of slavery in Egypt on a journey towards a land promised to them by God. A journey that would take the rest of his life. And a goal he would never realise. Moses didn't enter the land of the promise. He died just before they got there. The Exodus story is a very well-known story, and it's full of high drama. And I'm sure the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue etched into stone is one which is very familiar for most, if not all of us. The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, is incredibly complicated and confusing. And the bulk of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are kind of a commentary on that. They're trying to explain it. And a lot of that might leave us, frankly, quite cold. Lots and lots of prohibitions, thou shalt not. Lots and lots of rules. So it's really difficult to see how on earth they relate to life in 21st century Western Europe. And let's be honest, Leviticus is not exactly the most popular topic for preachers to talk about. Even the Ten Commandments is not exactly fun. It's not light and happy. But I've tried today to approach it from an angle that is hopeful rather than judgmental. Perhaps keeping this in mind that Jesus loves us when we're good and Jesus loves us when we're bad. That there's something more hopeful than a set of thou shalt nots. We've already, a couple of weeks ago, reflected on God's covenant with Noah, symbolised by the rainbow. And last week on God's covenant with Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations. And so now we move on several centuries, certainly at least four centuries, to a covenant between God and Moses. And at the very end of chapter 19 of the book of Exodus... God says this, You shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Essentially what this covenant does is to take one small nation, the Israeli or Hebrew nation, and say to it and of it, together you fulfill the role of a priest for the whole world. The whole world belongs to God. God has covenants with the whole world that we already know about through Abraham and Noah. But with Israel there is a covenant to be like the priests for God to everybody else. It isn't the case that Israel is better. It isn't the case that Israel is a favoured nation, that God likes them better than the others. Rather, God sees within this group of people the potential to fill what we might call a pontifical role, a priestly role, to act as a bridge between people, between the world, and with God. That somehow, en masse, together, they become God's ministers. Or if we wanted to put it another way, they're to be the free sample. 
the example of what it means to be the people of God living in a reconciled creation. People would look at Israel and think, well, that's kind of what we're aiming at. That's what it should be like. Now, I have to say, as I go on and read the scriptural record, I do wonder to whatever extent they ever managed that, because, let's be honest, they made a right pig's ear of most of it. But let's start by asserting that this covenant is continuous with the others, that God hasn't changed God's mind about the rest of creation, that this fits in with what God has already said. And if that's the case, if God's covenant is with the whole of creation, with the plants and the animals and the the minerals, the rocks and the oil and everything, as well as with the people, And if God has promised and it's trustworthy that Abraham is the ancestor of many nations, then that gives us a way of approaching the Decalogue through a lens not of prohibition and judgment, but rather of exhortation and love. Well, that's my hypothesis for today anyway. It would take a heck of a long time to work through all of it in, just, in time and do justice to it, which we don't have. You do actually want to get home for your lunch today. But hopefully in what I've prepared and reflected on, and I believe God has been leading in, is something that you think, yeah, I could take that away and think about it a bit more. When we look at the Decalogue, what we find is a very carefully ordered list. It moves from some central principles outwards to practices and parts of life. And I think the order is as important as what it says. There's a natural progression there that seems to make sense. The first three commands specifically relate to the centrality of God to the life and practice of the Hebrew people who are to act together as priests for all the nations. We need to remember that these commandments arise in a complicated polytheistic context in which this new Hebrew nation is arising. And if you read Genesis, there's all sorts of bewildering religious practices going on. But this first commandment is actually quite remarkable. And one commentator I read described it as this. He called it practical monotheism. There's no saying that God's false and that God's false and that God's not true. What they're told is, put this God first. I am the God you are to follow. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? If they're going to carry on in the tradition of the covenants they've heard, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, then they've got to put that God central. No matter how attractive the alternatives appear, no matter how tempting it would be to mix and match a bit of this religion and a bit of that religion and to follow a bit of the water god and a bit of the tree god, actually they need to make their minds up. They need to say, we choose this god, the god of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the god of Noah, the god of the promises, and that is who we will put first and foremost. And the prohibition of idols and statues and other artifacts created for religious ritual reflects that same historical context. 
My little church down south that I served for nearly six years, when I first arrived, um, somebody commented to me about the cross that was at the front, and they said, um, is that okay, or, or, or is it a graven image? Because they didn't quite understand what was and what wasn't allowed by way of things. We all have photographs in our houses. A lot of us have things that are engraved. We kind of accept graven images as part of life. Of course we do, and there's nothing wrong with photographs, nothing wrong with the statues and ornaments that we have. But people in other belief systems had their totems, their fetishes, and their icons for their deities. And it must have been really tempting for the Hebrew people to say, we want something like that. Well, actually, we know it was, because whilst Moses built the mountain, they were busy making a golden calf. They wanted something physical and tangible. One of the commentators I looked at said, this prohibition is a safeguard, not against something like dodgy, but about narrowing down the way they understand God. For example, if you were to say, well, let's make a representation of God as an eagle. Eagles are strong, eagles are powerful, eagles can fly. Then what would happen is you would limit the way you understood God to the attributes of an eagle. And you'd miss out on all the other ways of understanding God. And if you have an object that object can be captured and it can be smashed to pieces. So presumably, if you can capture and smash the object, you can capture and smash God. So these objects were actually hindering the understanding of God. So the ban on images is actually, if we look at it this way, liberating. It's saying God is the God of all creation. God isn't confined to one place where you've built the statue or to one time where you worship this way. Actually, you can get hints and glimpses of God in the whole of creation. You look at the stars and you think, wow, that tells me something about God. You look at the the water and you think, yes, God's like water, refreshing and cleansing. Or you look at plants or whatever, and they give you more hints about God. Read the Psalms, there's all sorts, isn't there? God is my rock, God is my shelter, God is my fortress. They all capture something, but none of them capture all of it. So perhaps what this command is really saying, don't try to define God too tightly. Don't try to confine God using human categories. Never think that you fully understood God. We talk about the idea of putting God in a box, don't we? And maybe that's partly what that command is. Don't try and box God in. And then do not misuse the name of God. Do you remember all when it got very touchy about the television, when people started to um, use the name Jesus Christ, and you know people got very uppity and wrote letters in? There's much more going on than that here which is probably a good job, considering the number of times I hear from church-going people in Scotland, oh, Jesus. Now, what do you think that comes from? Hmm, I wonder, that's Jesus, isn't it? Or OMG, or whatever it is. We kind of get hung up on those, the words that people use. And maybe that's no bad thing, but there's something much more here than the words we speak. This is about how we use the name of God. 
We turn on our televisions at the moment. We open the newspaper and what do we hear or see? We hear people justifying atrocity in the name of God. Saying, I do this in the name of Allah. Allah is just Arabic for God. It doesn't mean a Muslim God that's different from our God. Unless we get a little bit complacent that we wouldn't do that sort of thing. Well, look at the church's own history of forced conversion, execution, and wiping out of whole communities. I think what this commandment says, don't have the audacity to presume that you can claim divine warrant for what you do. You're human. You'll mess up sometimes. So just recognize that not everything God's people do or think is consistent with God's nature. You may agree, you may disagree, that's fine. But we have these three commands that specifically relate to God. And then we get one that's a kind of transition command that talks about religious practice. If you can remember when we were looking at the creation story and the earlier covenants, we recognized that the Jewish understanding of Sabbath or Shabbat is a foretaste of heaven, a glimpse of that for which they hope, very much like the revelation vision that we look for, the new heaven, the new earth, that situation when everything is reconciled to God. So as a priestly nation, this free sample of what it means to be God's people, the Hebrews are reminded of their duty to model that for the whole of creation, including their servants, including their slaves, their cattle and their sheep, and for the trees and for the fields, and even for the foreigners that happen to be there. It is a physical, ethical, and spiritual anticipation of their eternal hope. I have a feeling it's a little bit like the tea and cake rule on here. Live tomorrow's life today. Be that for others that you believe God wants for all. And out of that, out of that understanding of who God is, that understanding of the hope towards which they're directed, come the practical commands relating to family and society. Respect for parents may be, as the commentators assert, simply a reference to the responsibility of adult children to care for their frail elderly parents. There was no social services, there was no care homes. And whilst that's valid, it seems to me, well, a tad narrow. Because the promises of God are for all people, not just for parents and children in that relationship. So couldn't we argue that, extend that argument to say everybody who's vulnerable in society But that doesn't quite fit with the text. It specifically says, respect your parents. And I can't help wondering if actually it's a requirement to give due esteem to our forebears. Something we see very much in African and Oriental culture. Respect those who went before you. The people who believed the promises. The people who did their best to model the vision. The people who left Adelaide Place to come out to this part of the city that was just emerging and said, we want to be God's people there. 
and the people who went from here to Partick and Port Dundas and Drum Chapel and Castle Hill and said, and we want to take that on out further. Respect those people. Remember the vision they had. Because by understanding where you came from, you stand a better chance of getting it right now. This is the command with the promise, isn't it? You do this and things will go well for you. I don't quite know what that alludes to, what the going well looks like. But I do know that historians say to us, if we understand our past, we can live our future more healthily and shape a better tomorrow. I wonder if there's some of that in there. Remember the God of promise, the promises for all creation, the promises to Noah, the promises to Abraham. Hold on to that and let that shape your here and now. The four pithy prohibitions on murder, adultery, theft, and lying seem quite straightforward, don't they? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. So then we've got the whole of Leviticus and Deuteronomy to help us work out what that looks like. For example, just what actually do we mean by murder? And What do you do if you never catch the murderer, if you can never find out who did it? And how does an accidental death fit in with a rule about murder? And why is it okay to go to battle and kill a whole load of people if we've got this rule that says you mustn't kill? Or if we were to follow another one, what is it that constitutes adultery in a society where polygamy and concubinage were perfectly normal parts of life? What did adultery look like then? And if you go on to read the scriptures, why were the rules different for men and women? Because frankly, men could get away with it and women couldn't. If you plough your way through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's all sorts of commentary on these commandments And these are earnest endeavours of devout people to develop a workable code of conduct in what, to be quite honest, sounds like a very disordered and dysfunctional society. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about the rules we have in in Scotland and in indeed the whole of the United Kingdom. And most of them are a response to something going wrong. We don't make the rules up first. We make up a rule when it goes wrong. So we have the drink-drive laws and we'd lower the limit, and we lower the limit in the hope of getting that under control. We didn't make that rule first and do it the other way around. But let's not get bogged down in minutiae. Let's try and see these commands through the lens of the inclusive, wonderful promises of God, this rainbow people idea, and the idea that the Hebrew people are to be a model for the rest of the world. Respect for all of life, for human and animal life, comes from the recognition that everything has its origin in God. And the belief that all humans bear the image and likeness of God has to affect the way we treat each other. Somebody who murders attacks the very likeness of God in the person they kill. But at the same time, by what they do, They deny the image of God in themselves. There's something dehumanizing about it. And of course, as Jesus would go on to teach later, attitudes are just as important 
as actions. If you think in your heart murderous thoughts, you might as well do it, says Jesus. Because by thinking it, you're denying that person's personhood. And likewise, sexual activity is reserved for stable, faithful, committed relationships. Valuing and respecting the other person, not coercing or forcing on one hand, and not demeaning or denying on the other. Try as we might, we won't find a tidy definition of marriage in Scripture. You won't find anything that says it's this or it's that. But we will discover that adultery can be mental as well as physical. And lust is every mit as sinful as a physical carrying through of those ideas. Respect for property and possessions. Recognition that theft is to deny what is legitimately somebody else's. That's all right, isn't it? I mean, I'm not going to come round to your house and nick your stuff. Well, yeah. But what about in our day when the land on which the poorest people eke out a living is snatched away by a multinational? Or when the access to basic needs such as food or health care or education are denied by wealthy governments, nations, and even wealthy communities. Perhaps the situation of poverty in our own nation and the response to that of food banks and other such things is an indication that some theft is going on here. Because in this rule about property is a sense of mutuality. It's not just about me and mine and what I want and what I need, but actually to think globally about everybody. The prohibition on lying, distorting or denying the truth is very similar. How easy it is to convince ourselves that what we're doing is all right and we're not really denying others and we're not really misleading. But perhaps we are. And then finally, the one on covetousness. And this, interestingly, like the one about the Sabbath, includes humans and animals and property. Extending to our neighbour, the person nearby. I'm not to covet your car or your television or whatever it is that you've got. But does it just mean in relation to you? Or does it mean to the people down the road in that funny country called England or a bit further north in that funny country called Norway? Lust for property, lust for wealth, lust for success, given free reign, (coughs) leads to lying and stealing and killing, the breakdown of families and communities, the loss of vision, the loss of faith. In fact, that covetousness almost takes us back, up through the list, destroying all that is good, if we don't keep it in check. The promise that Moses was given was basically this. If you will be a people who, with due diffidence, give your primary allegiance to the God who defies definition or comprehension, if you will model the eschatological hope seen in Shabbat, if you will respect those who went before you, and if you will build a society that recognizes the intrinsic worth of every life, valuing stable, faithful, intimate human relationships, promoting peaceful coexistence free from theft, deception, or envy, then you'll be a holy nation, a priestly nation, 
a nation ministering to all other nations for me. Or, as Jesus put it, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. This is the law. And everything else is commentary upon it. If you remember right back to the start of the service, I used the words from 1 Peter and the image of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, used to describe the followers of Jesus. And perhaps rightly so. Because we are the people to whom this promise and responsibility are entrusted. It's people like us who mess up, who struggle, who get it wrong sometimes. Who God calls to be the icon of hope. The light in the darkness. The glimpse of a promised new creation. Thankfully, those whom God calls, God also equips. And with them, God also travels. Sometimes I find it really hard to pray with words, which makes this quite hard. Sometimes when I wake up and I listen to the radio and I hear about what's happening in the world, it's not words that come to me, it's silence. Later on, when I'm invited into somebody's house and they apologise for how cold it is because that day they had to choose between buying food for their children or buying more gas, then it's not words that come, it's silence. Sometimes when I speak to my friends on the phone who are battling with depression and serious illness, then words are the last thing they need. So I was really glad this morning to find the words of somebody else to use. Our Lenten intercessions today are entitled Faced with Desolation and are written by Roddy Hamilton from the Church of Scotland. But first, perhaps, we can sit with the silence. Let us pray. We step into Lent, O God, and we are faced with real desolation. Hear us as we pray at this time, prayers that groan in our souls, that no God doesn't mean someone who steps in and sorts it all out, like some tooth fairy, but that you stand in the desolation and weep at loss and suffering and all that brings it. And so we pray for the people of the world, not knowing what else we can do but live in relationship with silence that we may feel our humanity with each other for the sake of that humanity. And in places of conflict and the continual suffering there governing our humanity and the shock of what we become and who deals with in the name of economy and trade. God, may we hold your silence that speaks into this week. May we recognise who we have become in the conflicts of this week. May we perceive ourselves as we really are compared to creation's power. And bring to those people who hold us in that life, in relationships with each other, 
our family and friends, those ill and those recovering, those worried and those anxious. Hear us, O God, as we pray that we return to right relationships with the world and with each other. So be it. Amen. God of the promise, beyond our understanding or describing, we ask your blessing as we go from here to face the challenges of being your people in a complicated world. May your love fill us and may the threefold expression of love for God, for neighbour and for ourselves be our witness for Christ this day and always.